From the Bible Chapel in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, comes a new podcast. So here's what I'd like to know. Over the years, senior pastor Ron Moore has received many questions ranging from deep theological thoughts regarding the end times to what does parenting look like with teenagers? We've heard your questions and we want to hear more. Join us each week as we tackle new issues with a new guest. Life gets so busy sometimes. How do you balance a demanding job and family time? How can you influence your grandchildren when you don't live near them? What does our church believe about the end times? Where's the line between providing for my family and greed? How should I have conversations with my family who don't know God? How can we cultivate our marriage while juggling the responsibilities of young kids, jobs, and aging parents? Welcome back to So Here's What I'd Like to Know, the Bible Chapel's podcast where we have the privilege of answering questions that you ask. Season one was great, in my very, very humble opinion. We had a lot of fun recording answers to your questions, and we're excited to be back for another season. The only thing that can make this podcast a reality is your questions. So remember, email me at mstockman at biblechapel.org. All right, let's jump into this week's episode. Thanks, Maria. We have uh, with us today Dave DiDonato, who is our associate pastor at the Bible Chapel. Dave, thanks for joining us. It's good to be here. Thanks. And Zeb Thomas, who is our campus pastor in Washington, and Zeb kicked off season one, and now he's back (laughs) kicking off season two. You are a lead-off hitter. (laughs) Uh, Or a sucker for punishment, (laughs) one of the two. (laughs) (laughs) Well, maybe both, but... Uh, we're gonna we're gonna go in and uh, jump right into uh, question number one. All right. So first question says, in Acts four one through four, it says the disciples were put in custody. Did Herod's temple have jail cells? Also, it mentions the captain of the temple. Who ran the temple? There were chief priests, high priests, Pharisees, Sadducees. How did all that work? So there's a lot to that question, right? Uh, that question deals with uh, with uh, the, st- the the structure, the building of the temple, and it deals with the hierarchy uh, of Judaism, and then it deals with c- the current status of Judaism. So, I'm going to start uh, Zeb with you. Uh, let's talk about um, kind of the structure and hierarchy of the temple. And Dave, jump in uh, when uh, yeah. when you want. Yeah, uh, good question. Lots of pieces to that question. I think probably the uh, one of the places to begin is uh, is how the temple was run and the ruling body in first century Judaism over the temple. Uh, this would have been the second temple at that time was called the Sanhedrin, the Jewish High Court of the day. The Sanhedrin usually consisted of about seventy-one members, seventy elders plus the high priest who was always the presiding officer over over that ruling court, if you will, and they controlled the activities as a whole of, of all the temple. Yeah, and uh, some debate on, on, on that phrase, chief priest, whether we see it in the Old Testament or not, but we don't. We, we see the office of the high priest, who is a supreme religious leader. For the Israelites, we know specifically uh, his duties with the Day of Atonement and what we see throughout the Old Testament. We don't really see the, this, this title, chief priest, and it's in the plural, until we get uh, to the New Testament, Zeb. And uh, the question, another question I said was, captain of the temple, do we know much about this guy? 
Yeah, so you bring up a good point, Dave. Uh, some of what we are reading here in Acts, we don't read as a structure that laid out for us in the Old Testament Levitical law. Uh, and uh, and so I, I think um, uh, what we have to understand is all Scripture is placed in a context, and the context, the, the backdrop, if you will, for what's happening here in the book of Acts is the Roman government, which is ruling over Judea at this time. And so uh, high priests back in the day were would rule for life. He only had one high priest, and he would rule until he died, and then there was a successor. So, uh, so there were, there was only one of them. But in this time, during Roman rule, uh, the Roman government would get rid of high priests as they saw fit to achieve their political and economic means. Uh, and so, you would have in the uh, in the first century a number of high priests. You'd never had this before in the Old Testament, but a number of high priests uh, who had served in office now they're now they're no longer the high priests, what do you do with them? They've kind of got this special status, and so they became the chief priests. And then you had almost like a chief priest in waiting, Dave. That's what you're talking about with the captain of the temple, who was the second in rank to the high priest. He ran the captain of the Levitical guard, took care of a lot of the administrative details of running uh, the temple, and usually that uh, captain of the temple was next in line to become high priest. And in the best of days, it worked well, but when man's involved, uh, there's always some uh, politics and human maneuvering and manipulation. And so we have in the history uh, many high priests and chief priests who uh, were not spiritually fit uh, for the job. There's a question here about jail cells in the temple. I'm thinking of the Old Testament. I can't think of a place in the Old Testament as God uh, gives the details of the building in the Old Testament that there are jail cells. But it says, did Herod's temple have jail cells? Now, Herod, you know, uh, uh, wanted this big edifice uh, to him, really to himself. We still, we still call it Herod's temple, so that worked. Um, but it doesn't seem like they're jail cells. But, Zeb, you had a passage that may give us some insight into their not some speculation, but into their not being jail cells in Herod's temple particularly. Absolutely. Uh, and and it's, a, it's a great point, Ron, uh, the, um, for us to make sure that we uh, sink our teeth into as we're talking about some of these very complex historical and theological questions. Uh, and, and it's this, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture. Right, and so uh, Scripture is largely silent on this issue of um, prison cells in the temple. That wouldn't have been the case in the Old Testament. But in the very next chapter, if you keep reading from our identified passage here in Acts chapter four, we, we see in Acts chapter five the apostles are in prison again. Uh, and and this time it says about the prison that they're put into. I'm reading from Acts five verse eighteen. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. Uh, so I think as best we can we can tell from what Scripture says on this issue, there were not prison cells in, in the temple per se, although there would have been public prison cells uh, readily available nearby. Right. So as, as best we know, no jail cells in the temple. Um, Pharisees and Sadducees uh, today, um, uh, the two sects, Pharisees, uh, very legalistic, uh, they believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees, very legalistic, didn't believe in the resurrection. And a lot of uh, sects came out of them. Uh, a lot of groups came out of them that still exist today, some following uh, different rabbis through history. So you still have that. But 
as far as Sadducees and Pharisees as we know them in the New Testament, Dave, what, what would you say about that? Um, well, we, we don't have them still in practice today, those specific sects, but we, we were, when we think about what they stood for, we still see that today, whether that is legalism, um, the way we see ourselves uh, in the eyes of God, how, how do we attain this relationship with the living God, uh, a works-based righteousness that we see specifically in the Pharisees, but also Sadducees, we, we still see today. And I also think something that separated the two groups beyond uh, their theology was the Sadducees were very much looking for political gain. Uh, they were looking uh, to really be more cooperative with the Roman Empire. And um, are there people who have used their religious beliefs for, for I wouldn't say just political gain, but personal gain? Mm-hmm. Um, their status or what they want to achieve in life, they would put that before their relationship with God or use their relationship with God in that manner. So although we don't have those specific sects of Judaism today, what they stood for, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So Zeb, I don't know what you would say with that. Oh, I think you handled that well, Dave. I, w- I would simply say uh, sometimes there's a temptation for us as we read the Bible and we consider people who lived long ago with a very different culture, uh, the technology, the infrastructure, nowhere near built out as, as what we have in our modern society today, to sort of think that they were different type of people, types of people. Uh, and the bottom line is, sometimes we call that chronological snobbery. We think we're better than what, uh, that, what they were back in the day. The reality is human nature has not changed in 2,000 years. People are people. Uh, we're sinful. We're fallen uh, on, the, on the back end of Genesis 3. And, and we do see, although these groups are no longer in existence in Judaism today, their posture is, Dave, I think you identified that well, the, uh, the Sadducees reject the supernatural. They didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in uh, spirits, angels, demons, any of that sort of thing. Uh, and they, they didn't hold to the uh, inspired truth of the whole Old Testament canon, right? And so, so when you don't believe in those things, who's, who's your authority? Well, well, you are, and you follow what culture says and what's politically expedient for you to, uh, for you to do. Do we know people like that? Of course we do. And uh, and the flip side for the Pharisees, they were all caught up in works-based righteousness. They would obey the law to its letter, but miss, as Jesus would say, the weightier matters of that truth. Um, what one thing I'm thinking too, as we're discussing this with three pastors in the room is when we think about the Pharisees and Sadducees, the amount of people they... I thought you were getting ready to tell a joke. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> uh, what my dad's when you a minister. He does the jokes. Okay. No, no monologue today. <laughs> my first one, so I don't want to go too far. Okay. Um, is the amount of people they affected, yeah. right, in their leadership. Yeah. And we see that yeah. in churches today. Right. When a pastor is self-absorbed or they're preaching yeah. something that's not of God's word, I mean, that goes beyond the minister the people that they affect. Sometimes we forget about that, the influence that these two areas had in the church. So you guys are both making tremendous points, and I was just thinking about this. Um, you know, human nature is human nature regardless of what, quote-unquote, religion you are following. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is legalism. There are man-made laws. There are laws upon laws to work your way to God. And, you know, this law doesn't quite get you there, so another layer of that law will get you closer and you see that throughout you see it not only in different religions but let's just think about christianity i grew up uh, in a in a in a legalistic church Uh, we believe jesus was the only way uh, to have a relationship 
uh, with the living God. So that was orthodox. Um, and we added uh, many rules. Uh, you don't go to movies. Uh, yeah. There's no dancing, uh, tobacco, and alcohol. Now, in and of themselves, not doing those things, it wasn't bad, but those were the ways that you proved your allegiance to God. Those were the ways you worked your way to that, that, that the good side of God. Right? We were already kind of there, but you were going to work your way there. And, and so um, that, that's a very, um, there's a lot of attrition. There's always attrition in, in legalism because one day you wake up and say, I can't, I can't do this. Right. That's right. I can't yeah. be good enough yeah. for God. And I failed again. And um, if I have to work my way to him, I, I, I throw up my hands and give up. And so in, in my uh, uh, church background, I have so many uh, friends who just went off the tracks because they said, you know, this is the deal. It's not for me. I can't do it. And legalism does that. Yeah. Uh, legalism. And the other thing about legalism, uh, a legalist always uh, gets caught in his or her own legalism. Because if you go in legalism, uh, you know, you're pushing legalism on somebody else, there's going to be at some point you're going to trip up. You just, it's, it's, it's a, an insidious circle uh, that, that just demonstrates uh, the, the, um, the, the fallacy of, of, uh, of, of any aspect of working away to God uh, and goes back to the basis of Scripture, God loves us so much that he sent his son. It's always about based, salvation is always based on grace. It's always, the means is always faith. And the object is always Jesus, whatever testament uh, you are in. Uh, Ron, Ron, real quick, if I can say, going with that, because I grew up similar, uh, not only in your relationship with God as a legalist, man, do the, the you become judgmental on others? Um, if they do those things that you believe are necessary to please God um, and, and really disrupt your, your, your view uh, of those around you, view of the church body. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was in a similar boat until Ephesians 2, 8, 9. God revealed what grace was mm-hmm. and the freedom now I had to follow him. I mean, that was an overwhelming freedom that actually produced obedience in my life when I knew it was all about what Christ has done for me. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, I'm right with you on that. You know, interesting story. I, uh, I uh, uh, grew up in the church, and one of the, um, the products of legalism is you can't have assurance of salvation because if it's based on what you do, then you're, right. it's always up for grabs, right? So I applied to Dallas Seminary, and they said, hey, you come from this background. Um, explain your view of assurance. And I said, oh, that's easy. You can't have it. And they said, I think you'll be better off at another seminary. So I said, wait a minute, man, I, I want to go. I want to learn. And uh, they finally let me into Dallas. They said, if you come with an open mind. And I'll never forget, after a class on theology proper, a guy named Robert Leitner. We called him Lightning Bob uh, because <laughs> he was not the most enthusiastic teacher. And uh, after this class, there was some discussion with that he had in class and then another student in the parking lot. Uh, Dallas Seminary, 100 degrees uh, in uh, in September, I finally realized that I couldn't be good enough for God. Mm-hmm. And God came, and I, and I finally had assurance that if I would die right there, 
I, I would go to heaven. It wasn't based on what I And I tell you, it was like a load of bricks were lifted from my shoulders. And, uh, you know, my, my life has never been the same. That's one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about people understanding. And a lot in our area, a lot of people are from backgrounds like mine. Oh, yeah. That you can know without any doubt. That's why I'm excited to, to go through First John, right? Mm-hmm. I write these things to you so you can know you have a relationship right. with Jesus Christ. Now, that, that doesn't mean you just go and do anything you want. You know, you have the... You have the uh, you have the freedom to sin when you understand that grace. That's the great motivation to obey. Yeah. You still will sin. John tells us. First John tells us that. But the other thing I wanted to say uh, real quick, Dave, you mentioned something. There are a lot of people today who love to mix politics and Christianity. Um, we could do a whole session on that. In fact, Maria. Jot that down. We may do that. All right. History shows from the Old Testament to the New Testament to the 300s to the 1500s. When you do that, it is a recipe for danger. 1313, Constantine becomes the emperor of the world. He's marching into battle. Uh, he marches. Uh, he has a vision. He, he, he wins the battle, and he starts marching under the cross of Christ. People don't even know for sure if Constantine was a Christian. His mother was, but they don't know for sure if he was a Christian. Some say he came to Christ on his deathbed. But he said, Christianity's it. It's going to be the national religion. And so now you have people professing Christians to become the mayor of the town, the official, you know, at the whatever— uh, priests uh, during that time. That is, the, you, you start seeing from 400 to the Reformation, you know, just the, um, the total depravity of man and the priesthood. And so when you start mixing politics and religion, it is a dangerous, dangerous, uh, combustible uh, mixture. And so I think when people say, well, we, you know, we want the United States to be a Christian nation— we want the United States to be filled with people sold out to Jesus. Right. But when that starts happening from the top, history says that's a dangerous, dangerous thing. Right. There's one more part to this question that I think is uh, is interesting. Zeb, I'm going to throw it to you. Uh, you have the temple, and, you know, man, you, 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 go, you go to Jerusalem, and you see the, the temple and all that, and you realize how much water it took because they have these days of sacrifice and there's blood all over the place. Everywhere, yeah. It is a bloody mess. 70 AD, the Romans come in, destroy the temple. Where do you go do the sacrifices? And so the question's a good one. How do Jews believe they're having their sins atoned for since there was no animal, there are no animal sacrifices there? I asked this to a Jewish friend of mine and it was so interesting. He just blew it off and said, oh, the sacrifices, they really didn't mean much. Even in the Old Testament, I thought, what are you talking oh, about? Yeah. Yes, they did mean something in the Old <laughs> yeah, Testament, yeah. Uh, but um, uh, they they did mean something. Yes. And now the temple's gone. They moved the religious center to Jamnia, but it never what the temp the temple's a temple. It's got to be in Jerusalem. It's never the same. What happened? 
So it was destroyed. That's a simple answer. The Romans came in and uh, crushed uh, Jerusalem and destroyed the temple in the year 70 AD. And uh, uh, that really stymied Jewish practice, Jewish worship, because uh, the uh, the importance of the sacrifice, which was critical in the Old Testament, without the uh, shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins, uh, the scripture says. The... Um, uh, the the sacrifice, not just the what of the sacrifice, but also the where of the sacrifice was critical. You couldn't offer a sacrifice on any high hill in Jerusalem. Uh, God was very clear as he spelled out uh, where the sacrifices were to be made. And that was the temple, the place where his presence uh, dwelled. And uh, and with the temple gone, the Jews were stuck. They couldn't offer these sacrifices and, and had to try to figure out some other way to relate to God. And, and, and so I think uh, uh, many, many uh, practicing Jews today would say, well, uh, no, we no longer offer animal sacrifices, but we, re- we relate to God through, uh, through repentance and through prayer and through our good deeds. Uh, and there's some, uh, there's some scriptures that they would run to in the Old Testament uh, about um, uh, a heart attitude before the Lord being uh, more important than the physical sacrifice. Uh, so for instance, Psalm 46, and sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you've given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offerings you have not required, right? And so there, there's places you can go to if you want to hunt and peck a, a, a scripture uh, to say, well, that, um, they're really not that necessary. Uh, but I think these two twin truths exist together. The sacrificial system was critical to Jewish uh, Jewish practice uh, in the Old Testament. And uh, now that it's gone, uh, Jews continue to worship as best they can without it. Here's a cool thing. So <clears throat> Jesus comes, so let's just say 33 AD, right? He's crucified. Jesus is the one time for all time sacrifice. Everything that happened at the temple at the temple led to, foreshadowed that one time for all time sacrifice that Jesus made for us on the cross. So for 35 years, God allows the church, the church would actually meet often in the temple. Right. Christians would go to the temple. And and at the time, Judaism would even let them as long as they didn't get too carried away, right? So for 35 years, he allows the Christians to go in, influence, evangelize, tell people about Christ. And then he says, done. Enough's enough. No more animal sacrifices. Mm-hmm. Jesus is the only way. You don't need it, and you can't have it. Mm-hmm. The one time for all time sacrifice has been made. It's over. It's done. And now it's about Jesus. I, I just think that's amazing where God says, I'm going to give it some time, but now you can't, you cannot do it anymore. Absolutely. And I, I would just add, too, if you're interested in digging into this more, about a year ago here at the Bible Chapel, we preached through the book of Hebrews, where this theme is just highlighted again and again and again, that Jesus is what uh, the writer of the Hebrews would call the once for all sacrifice mm-hmm. for sins. Very good. Very good. All right, Maria, do we have another question? We do. But very quickly, I just want to remind you guys that we can, in the show notes, link the Hebrew series that Zeb was just talking about. And then also, um, if you really want to experience these places in these areas in Israel, like we are talking about, there is a trip in April of 2020. We're going to have signups on the website, and I can also link that into the show notes. So we are planning on leaving on April 20th of 2020. So 
for 2020. Mm. Very nice little promo there. Wow. I, yeah. I, hey, and can I add one thing? And sure. we're working on, this is a cool, we're working on a three or four day hike. Yes. Uh, prior to the regular trip from Nazareth to Capernaum, and it's called the Jesus Trail. And we'll be hiking and staying all night in kibbutz. Once you start the hike, <laughs> You're in. you got to finish the hike. <laughs> no <turning back. laughs> There's no turning back. You can't go back to the bus. <laughs> but, right. So it's about uh, 12 miles a day of hiking, and that's going to be pretty cool. So if anyone wants to yeah. join that uh, prior to the regular trip, yes, that'll be fantastic. Yeah. But uh, thanks for promoting that. Yes, that's very well course. done. Yes, of course. Yes. Well, thank you. You're welcome. I, I, season two, I've learned a little bit. So, <laughs> you know. <laughs> All right. Our second question. We are just going to skip ahead a couple chapters in Acts. Um, and so our question is in reference to Acts 8, verses 14 through 17. And the question says, Peter and John went to Samaria to lay hands on the people to receive the Holy Spirit. Why did that need to happen? Doesn't it happen immediately after believing? And that's a great question because so many things are going on in Acts. And uh, I'm going to throw that to you guys and, and take off with it. Well, I'll start. Although, Zeb, I think you just finished going. Did you finish going through Acts with the we, Washington yeah, campus? We just so this is fresh, fresh for you. Uh, this is a good reminder. Bible study methods here is uh, when you're studying Scripture and you and you see something that sticks out in Scripture. The best, Ron, you often say the best thing to support Scripture is more Scripture. So, right, we want to look at all of Scripture. So, when we look at salvation, uh, we see throughout Scripture that the Holy Spirit um, and dwells in a believer upon salvation when you trust in Christ. Ephesians 1:13. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So how do we look at this? You know, Zeb, we can talk about this. I think uh, we both agree that Acts is a history of how God uh, started his church and the Samaritan's manner of receiving the Spirit here in Acts 8, it, it should be taken for what it is. It's an accurate account of what happened in their case. And it's not the normative That's right. in every case, right? That's right. Um, and... I think it's it's important here to look at all of all of Acts here as God is starting His church with like He says in the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and we also know. And here's the thing: we we can infer what's happening here, right? It's dangerous to also say this is exactly what happened. So we're inferring what we're seeing, here, right? We have the the history of the Samaritans and the Jews, the really the hatred there, and we're trying. God is building a unified church, right, with the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which leads to to maybe why we can infer. Um, we see that the Spirit came upon them when the apostles arrived. So, mm. so what, build from that. Yeah, Take it from there. I think I think that's a great start, Dave. Um, and it's important for us to uh, articulate that all Scripture, every every word of Scripture, is truth. It's our final authority for life and living. That's true of Acts. And although every bit of Acts is true. Uh, not all of Acts is prescriptive. It's, it's not all prescribing the way we ought to live exactly today. Some of it's just descriptive. Like you said, it's it's telling the account, the historical account of how the early church was established by the grace and power of God. And, and, and that's the case here, I think, in, in Acts chapter 8. We see... Uh, the uh, the Holy Spirit leading Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, to describe this transition, this seismic transition, really, between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And so this is a very unique time, and unique stuff is happening here. Um, I think that's important to, important to establish. Right. When you hear a question like that, and by this is a great question, 
there are two uh, points of Bible study methods that uh, we need to think about. Number one, when you look at something in Scripture, uh, you want to look, is it normative? Does it happen over and over and over again? Uh, so if you're in the Old Testament and, uh, you know, Gideon puts out the fleece and you say, okay, I'm going to do that. I'm going to put out a fleece. People talk about that. Well, that's not normative. You don't see that. You don't see a, a commandment, put out a fleece to determine God's will, right? That's what Gideon did for that time. That's not normative. You, you can draw uh, principles from it. Same with, same with this. Uh, you know, laying on of hands uh, on a particular group to receive the Holy Spirit. That's not normative throughout Scripture. Uh, it happened here. It's the early church. It's getting started. Uh, you know, uh, people are learning and they're, they're, they're experiencing, you know, who God is. So, so is it normative? The other one is when you have a, when you have a passage that's unclear, you always interpret it by passages that are clear. And repeated. So here you have, my goodness, I, does this happen? Do people lay hands on and you receive the Holy Spirit? But then you go back to the passage you read, the Ephesians passage, and many other ones, others, and we're told that as soon as you trust in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit lives in you. That's right. And so those two things, look for the normative right. and always interpret hard or unclear passages by clear and repeated passages that make up the truth of theology. Yeah, so let, let's uh, let's just be very very clear uh, about that. We'll nail the nail all the way in uh, to the board, if you will. So uh, in addition to that uh, verse that you shared, Dave, I think that was great in Ephesians one about how the Holy Spirit seals all those in Christ uh, for the day of redemption. We see over and over again, as Ron said, other passages. It might be helpful just to, to mention some of them so we can uh, hear how clear this is. My favorite is Romans chapter eight. Uh, verse 9, which says, essentially, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you, you don't belong to Christ. Uh, uh, scripture says this, you, how, you, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. That's pretty clear. Spirit of God, Spirit of Christ, it's the same Spirit. Talking about another way just to describe the Holy Spirit. Uh, and then one more in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. For we were all baptized by one Spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given, all given, the one Spirit to drink. That's great. And Maria, let's link, uh, let's put a link with those passages on there so that uh, those listening can can see those repeated pass and there are others the repeated passages of scripture that demonstrate that when we trust in Christ the Holy Spirit comes into us and we know we are part of Christ because the Holy Spirit is in us and 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 working through us because the Holy Spirit just didn't come and sit dormant when the Holy Spirit's in us the fruit of the Spirit is being uh, lived out in our life there's there's just some um, I know it might not be exactly pertaining to this question, but there's uh, there's just some beauty here to the body of Christ in, in Acts 8. So we got these the Samaritans, and then we have the Jews, right? Mm. These opposing parties. And we see the, the, the change power of Jesus Christ with the Samaritans and how, how God, we can infer here, desires for a unified church. Yeah. And we mm -hmm. see that, right? He, the Samaritans were not some new religious movement or something and by the apostles coming from Jerusalem there's a, a unified church here that's God's showing through the book of Acts and you know today I'm just thinking about today 
Now, there are key things when we come to doctrine that do separate, right? People who might say, I'm a believer, I'm a believer. So we have to watch that. Mm -hmm. But also, there, there, there's a beauty here that, that get, the most effective body is a unified body, especially in the local church, right? As we talked about, Ron was preaching here at the Bible Chapel about how the, the body builds the body, the, mm -hmm. the unified body of Christ. And when I think about the Samaritans and Jews and the way God used this unity here with Peter and John, it's beautiful. It is beautiful, and I think what you're talking about, Dave, is uh, is is part of the why, right? Scripture doesn't lay it all out entirely for us, right. but you got to sort of ask yourself the question: Okay, so if if anyone who trusts in Christ today immediately receives the gift of the Holy Spirit, that's so very clear. Then why in the world did it not happen that way back then? And I think uh, you're, what you're just talking about, Dave, is it could be part of the answer. Uh, certainly, it's a it's a big deal in Scripture, a big theme, the theme of the unity or the oneness of the body of Christ. I think that's, that's part of the, the answer. Interestingly enough, we see over and over again in, uh, in Scripture this animosity between the Samaritans and, and the Jews. And, and uh, I mean, it was, it was so very pronounced. And Christ, as he comes, is preaching in Samaria and tearing down those racial, ethnic barriers, that animosity that, that, that was uh, embedded there. And I'll, I'll press it just a bit further, too. Uh, so uh, what was happening here in Acts 8 was that Philip had preached the gospel in Samaria, and there was a revival. All these Samaritans were coming to Christ. Uh, and, and we don't know too much about Philip's background, but we know he's got a Greek name. Philip was not one of the apostles. He was a deacon uh, in, in the church and a, and a great evangelist. But So, so this guy who, who may have been a Hellenist, may have been Greek, was, was preaching the gospel in Samaria. And, uh, and, and so people were getting saved. They were coming to Christ. And then God waits to send the Holy Spirit until Jews, the apostles, come uh, and and just uh, cement that unity together. It's tearing down those walls of hostility between the Samaritans and the Jews. God, uh, God intentionally used, I think, these Jewish folks to unite with the Samaritans in this way to show we're, we're one body in Christ. What what a monumental message! Right. It's a great point. It's a great point. All right. We have uh, one more question. I'm here with Dave DiDonato and Zeb Thomas, and uh, we are working our way through several questions here. Maria, we have one more about the Holy Spirit and eschatology. That's Zeb's favorite the word. The eschatological theme that runs through this question. So funny. Yeah. <laughs> so. I love, that's one of my favorite words, eschatological. It's, I think it's Zeb's favorite it thing to talk about on this podcast. <laughs> if I can, so Ron's being gracious. He's a Dallas uh, seminary guy. He's got two Trinity guys here. And Zeb <laughs> is in the middle of his studies, and he's he's ready for anything on eschatology. I went to seminary. You guys went to Bible school. <laughs> yeah. oh. We're here to learn from Ron, so <laughs> we can right. continue yeah, learning. Right. That'd be great. Just keep, keep with the questions, would you? <laughs> All right, for the sake of everyone's safety, yeah. um, our third question is, does the Holy Spirit live within us once we are in heaven? Before before <laughs> you guys dive into this, before we started this podcast, we had 
we really had some fun discussions about, okay, let's see. Let's go back and do a little deductive reasoning here, and let's mm. think, start with what we know and right. work from there. So, mm. Zeb, what did we ever decide? Oh, oh wow. Well, <laughs> so, so one of the things we decided was that um, the Holy Spirit, non-negotiably, is he, he's everywhere. He's omnipresent. Uh, certainly, he's going to play a primary role in in heaven and the new heavens and the new earth as member of a of the triune Godhead. That, that that's non-negotiable. And we we should say this: when we are in heaven, when we are united truly and fully with our, the triune God of love, we are not surely not going to dial back our relationship with the Lord. The Holy Spirit indwells us now, and that's a, that's a beautiful thing. Uh, but our communion with God in no way will be taking a step backwards. Uh, much, much to the contrary. I want, I want to read this verse, which I think will kind of help uh, frame the discussion here about. Whether, is, will the Holy Spirit still indwell us in the eternal state in heaven? This is from John, 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. The Apostle John says, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him. Now, now I love that. He, he's acknowledging here, we, we don't know much about what the eternal state is going to be. There's a lot of unanswered questions. And interestingly enough, the point of the Bible is not to answer all of our intellectual curiosities about God and life, and but uh, but we have everything we need. God's given us everything we need for life and godliness. And so there's a sense in which we know the Holy Spirit's going to play a critical role in heaven, uh, and uh, and we know we're going to be like Christ, but we, what, what we will be fully is, is not yet known. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love what uh, I think Zeb said it well, and, and to build off the scripture he shared, I, I think John 14, 16, and 17 mm-hmm. gives us a good basis to answer these questions. We see uh, Jesus saying, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Well, that sounds like eternity, right? Mm-hmm. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because neither sees him nor knows him. Now listen to this. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. And I just think of that ending there. We don't know exactly what this mm. looks like for eternity. Mm-hmm. So either the Spirit will be in us or with us. We mm. just know that, right, with the Godhead. So we know that we will always have the presence of the Spirit, yeah. either with us or we know now we are sealed by the Spirit today. Mm-hmm. So we can rest in that. And there's a, a beauty, a, you know, Paul would say a mystery, yes. to where what God has planned for us for eternity. Um, we don't have to fear, yeah. uh, fear this. Mm-hmm. So. We know that um, whether the, whether we are whether we are in the presence of the Spirit right. or whether He is in us, right. that could be parsing some words. We do know that we are going to be in a perfect state, and yes. so we won't have to be controlled by the Spirit in that sense. We won't be submitting, right? It won't be a temptation for sin. Right. And then we say, Lord, you know, Holy Spirit, please give me the strength not to give in to this. Uh, so the the fruit of the Spirit will be displayed all the time in our life. Right. Uh, but, yeah, the, the in or in the presence of, mm. uh, I don't know what that's going to look like, but... Um, uh, but I know that uh, but we're going to be in the presence of God forever, and God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit right. is is going to be uh, with us. You know, Ron, I'm thinking of, an, of another verse uh, that could apply to this topic. It's uh, it's a well-known passage 
the Gospel of John, the third chapter, Jesus is having this conversation with Nicodemus. He's a, he's a Pharisee, he's a teacher of the law, and it's the well-known passage where Jesus explains the way to be saved. Probably the most quoted scripture ever, John 3.16, comes from this passage, come from, comes from this narrative. Uh, and, and so Jesus says this about what it means to be born again, he calls it, uh, and, and to see the kingdom of God. John 3, 3 to 8, Jesus answered him, Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how, how can a man be born when he's old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit. I think that's interesting. Unless you're born of water and the Spirit. The Holy Spirit's got something to do with this new birth. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Wherever the wind blows, or the, excuse me, the wind blows where it wishes as you hear the sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. He says it one last time. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit, right? And so something about our new life in Christ and certainly initiates by the power of the Holy Spirit. But I think there's a sense in which the, the new life which we will have forever uh, is, is catalyzed, made possible by the Spirit. We're born into uh, the Spirit. So again, I'm not sure that that's definitive one way or the other for this discussion, but uh, I think that's um, that's certainly inst instructive for us. Mm -hmm. uh, last one. I know, well, last scripture I'll rattle off. I think this uh, <laughs> pertains... Uh, Just like a sermon, isn't it? That's right. That's right. Welcome to it. If you ever go to Washington <laughs> campus, final, this is what you get. This, right? this is what you final, get. You get the word. Final, <laughs> final, last one. <laughs> uh, would ever say no more scripture. Right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> in the final chapter of the Bible, no less. So get this, Revelation 22. It's how the Bible buttons up. Uh, and some of the very last words of Scripture to us are this. Uh, the Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who's thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without Christ. And I love that. You've got the Holy Spirit beckoning us into this full and final consummation of all things. So will he be indwelling in us physically? I, I, I don't know. But but man, he began the journey of salvation for us and, uh, and he indwells us now. He's going to be with us forever. We know that. And we also know uh, that, that he is he's drawing us in. He's beckoning us to think about our final and forever home, uh, our, in, our eternal inheritance in Christ. Great, great. That's a great point, and appreciate that. Uh, since Zeb is not going to land the plane, uh, Maria, would you land the plane <laughs> of, this, of this podcast and uh, let people, uh, those listening, know uh, some links and uh, to look forward to the next one? Yeah, absolutely. So we will be back next week. Um, the podcast airs every Thursday at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. So as always, if you have any questions that you'd like to be answered on the podcast, if you have feedback, comments, questions, anything like that, please email me, Maria Stockman, at mstockman at biblechapel.org. Thanks for joining us and have a great day. Thanks for listening. We love being able to address these questions. And you can send additional questions to me, Maria Stockman, at mstockman at biblechapel.org. We talked about a lot of really great things today. And if you'd like to check out the show notes, visit biblechapel.org forward slash no podcast. That's biblechapel.org forward slash K-N-O-W podcast. 
Check out new episodes released every Thursday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for joining us and see you next time. This episode was produced by Maria Stockman, mixed and edited by Simon James and Brian Plaster, music by Christy Stockdale, and cover art by Andrew Johnson. Special thanks to the Bible Chapel Media Services team for their hard work and great questions. 